Kia ora team and welcome to the Beyond the Surface podcast. My name's Noel Willoff and on today's episode I'm joined by Paul Ballantyne. Paul started Moana Road back in 2008 after a stint being an economics teacher at a few colleges in Wellington and also dipping his toes into the property development market. It saw him being over $2 million worth in debt during the time of the global financial crisis. Like a true entrepreneur, Paul took a bunch of risks when setting up Moana Road by combining his passion of photography, kiwiana and business to set up the development of his company. A super cool story about humble beginnings with Moana Road now in 60 stores worldwide. Make sure you check out some of the items if you haven't already. There's links in the description to this episode below, so make sure you check them out. And as always, if you are enjoying the content of the podcast and you'd like to support it, please make sure to tell a friend about the podcast and rate the show five stars on Spotify. It helps us find new listeners. Your support is hugely appreciated. Welcome to episode number 18. Cool. Kia ora, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Awesome to have a local. And we just heard that this is your first ever podcast. So you're making the debut on Beyond the Surface, which I feel pretty special about. Yeah, no, nah, it's good to be here. I love listening to your podcast. So it's nice to be on the other end for once. Cheers, mate. Um, there's lots I want to unpack with your story. Obviously, being the founder and now director of Moana Road. Yeah. Through that, you've been a teacher. You've te- taught economics at Wellington College. Yeah, in Tower right. College and Wellington College, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm keen to rewind sort of back to the start around your childhood and what maybe gave you those entrepreneurial traits that you have today. So my family have a chain of stores called Ballantines. Okay. So right from when I was uh, you know, a nipper, dad had one store and over my life it's built up to 20, I think it peaked at about 27 stores. Mm. So he's definitely a, a, a businessman and um, someone I've looked up to and so business has always been in our family. So, you know, as a kid we were opening shops and and working on in the warehouse and watching that grow and expand. And um, I just feel like it was always in my blood. Like I was always like um, looking for golf balls and selling them and making juice. And so like I was always doing something um, to try and make some money on the side, just definitely in my blood. My father, my granddad, the same as well. So yeah, it's, um, it was always something I wanted to do really. Mm. Is that like a, a natural knack that you've had? Was that something that your dad was like, hey, come on, Paul, you, here's an idea you could sell, you know, Juice or whatever. Uh, he was always—he's a bit of a workaholic, and he was pretty focused on what he was doing. So it was, yeah, he wasn't like he was really mentoring me. I wouldn't say, but um, mentoring me as in I was watching him all the time mm. and seeing what they're doing, and it was part of what we did. So, um, but I think it's just—it's—it's it's, it's, if you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur, and it's, it's just you can't get away from it, almost, you know. Mm. And um, whatever, whatever I end up doing, I was always going back to doing a business again, you know. So. Um, it's, it's, it's like if you're a musician, probably you're just going to pick up a guitar and start playing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so true. Mm. Um, what was the sort of pivotal moment for you where you were at college yep. or high school and then you were thinking, uh, should I go to university? Should I work? Should I set up my own business? What was that sort of thought process for you as a young fella? I think, um, I think it's hard for young entrepreneurs because you finish school and you want to get into business, but you've got no money and you've got no actual schools because you haven't done a trade or anything. And, and I feel like young entrepreneurs are often a bit lost when they leave school. Um, and so I was probably a wee bit like that. And I actually started a business called Mr. Pinger. It was like a surf brand for a couple of years in like 92, uh, 93, selling um, polar fleece tops and all sorts of things. Um, some people might remember it. But um, after two years, I kind of felt like I'm never really going to be able to um, compete with the big Aussie brands. Mm. So I went off to university and studied marketing. But yeah, I feel like it probably didn't wanted to be in business, but didn't really know how to get into business. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Um, with Mr. Mr. Pinger, yeah. how big did that company get? Um, not very big. Like We were just doing like markets and there was no online back then, so um, just, yeah, just selling. I, actually, I should sell it on like the street and Manor's Mall. True, it was Manor's Mall back then. Now it's Manor Street, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, we just out the back of an old Holden Kingswood yeah. music festivals, yeah. all that sort of thing. It was pretty grassroots, but definitely gave me a bit of a taste for trading, which I liked. And when when you first started doing that, was that like was there an understanding for you like this is the path I want to go forward with my life around doing my own my own sort of stuff around entrepreneurial? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's always been in my head. I wanted. To, I want to be in business, but it was kind of just how to get to that point. Mm. Um, so I felt like I went and studied, uh, did a business degree. That's going to help me, 
Um, and I did the one at Massey, which is BBS, which is quite good for learning quite a wide range of skills in business. So you do law and economics yep. and accounting and all that. So that was good. Um, and while I was at university, actually, I used to, we used to hitchhike down south and buy old Holden, Kingswoods and Valiants and then drive them up and sell them to the, the rugby heads and sort of double our money. So we had this trade of old cars. So... Again, another thing going on in the background, making a buck. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. Always just a hustler then. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I mean, I just love, uh, yeah, like working for someone and just having a wage just doesn't do it for me, you know. Mm. I, I definitely want to always be. Because mm. um, the thing I love about being in business is the freedom it creates. Yeah. You know, like if I want to go and for a surf or I want to go and, go and play golf for the afternoon or whatever, um, perhaps I can do that if you're in business for yourself. Totally. Mm. It's, um, can, and someone who's on the nine to five corporate rat race like myself, it mm. can be so soul destroying, even just catching uh, like public transport, heading into town for yeah. work. Yeah. Like you're sitting there, you know, everybody on that train is just miserable. They just look like half of them are asleep. Yeah. And sometimes I look across everyone's faces, you know, just glued onto their phones and stuff. I'm like, is this really all there is to life? Like, you know, just being to the mercy of your employer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's just my worst nightmare. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's why teaching, because I ended up doing teaching, and teaching was quite good because I actually started property developing on the side and teaching. But teaching, you get a lot of free time. Mm. I mean, I guess you're supposed to be there all night, at night preparing lessons, but I, was, I wasn't. Um, <clears throat> so I was sort of doing like subdivisions and developing houses on the side okay. while I was teaching commerce. But teaching, like, yeah, go in the... The classroom, shut the door, and it's your world. You can do it how you want to do. Yeah, true. And so I love the autonomy of it, and it's kind of like a quite a nice halfway house. Mm. Um, so I love the years teaching. Mm. I loved um, had five years at Wellington College, and um, it was an awesome experience. But definitely came to the end, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. But mm. yeah, mm. what would you say to like a, a young person listening, or somebody wanting to start their own business? Yeah, um, who might be you know in high school or wherever they they are in life, what would you say to them just to like pick it up and really give it a go? I think it's a good idea to have a trade. And when I say trade, I don't mean a builder or a sparky. I mean a trade is a nurse, a lawyer, an accountant. Um, because when you're in business, something's go, it goes wrong and it went wrong for me in the GFC. So I could keep flicking back to teaching. So I think having a trade's good. Then plus you also are an expert or you know, you're knowledgeable of an area. So... If things go wrong, you're not going to go back to minimum wage, but you're going to go back to the wage you'll be paid for that skill. Mm. So I think it's good to have a trade. And um, and then it's a case of like finding a niche to get into, you know, where's there? There's always, the world's always changing. Like every day the world's changing and changing. It's not the same. And because the, whenever there's a change, there's an opportunity. Mm. So to think, you know, they, there's that saying in that late 19th, uh, 1890 or something, they, they shut the patent office because they thought everything had been designed. Mm. And obviously, since then, there's been a few leap forward. So um, there's always an opportunity. Things are always changing. There's always a niche you can get into. Yeah. And if you're small, yes, you don't have the clout of a big corporate, but you can move really quickly yeah. and, and do things and see gaps and opportunities. So my, my advice for a young person would be to look for those opportunities and gaps and mm. see whether you can have a crack. And don't be scared. Don't be afraid to do to humble yourself and sell on a street corner or sell at a market or do the yards on Trade Me mm. because that's what you need to, get to, to, to do to get, to get going. So, mm. And mm. how do you personally, Paul, like how do you look and find opportunities or gaps into what there are? Is it like having your finger on the pulse around what sort of trends are coming up or what might be missing? Like how do you, how do, you do that personally as an entrepreneur? Um. I think as an entrepreneur, you're always looking and you're just you're watching everything and seeing what's going on. And often you'll 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 go to like sunglasses, for example, are really big, our biggest product. You know, there's always the cheap, crappy um, petrol station signs, and there's always the expensive ones. But mm. there's never ones in the middle. You know, that were good quality, good styles, New Zealand brands. So it's kind of like you, you see a gap, and you try and fill it. Mm. So. Um, so my biggest strength probably would be the product development. So we, we, we've been in our, our product range from Ugg boots to headphones to teeth, like just doing everything. Everything. Eh? Like yeah. It's like 30, 40 page catalogue now. So 
Um, it's just finding those little niches where something's missing, you know? There's, there's nothing, nothing's been done in that space and getting into it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, if we fast forward then to 2008 when you mm. set up Moana Road, yeah. so that's, you know, where the global financial crisis was going on. Can you just yeah. talk through a bit around that year and what the sort of thought pattern was leading up to starting the empire that is Moana Road? Yeah, so I was I was a property developer and um, I got my butt kicked so hard. It really? Was a, like, but four or five of my best mates. So we basically all nearly lost everything. Um, and we were all kind of like had young families at the time. I had three kids, fourth on the way, and I owed $2 million at 10% interest rates. And I didn't have a job and my wife was home with babies. So, um, Talk you know, about pressure. Yeah, well, so for six months, I don't think I slept. For six, I'm not, I slept, but it was, <laughs> I didn't sleep well. And probably still got a few mental health scars from that. Um, it was a horrendous time. And... Um, really just came to the point where you just have to had to realise, well, we could lose everything and be all right with that and have a piece about that. So, um, But then I sort of went back relief teaching and I was um, I was trying to work out what's my next step. And um, I was, I've always wanted to be an importer and I was on Alibaba having a search round and, and I was talking to my brother who works for the family business and um, he said, you know, if, you, if you're importing, you've got to find something that people can't copy. Mm. And then... Um, a friend of mine said to me that you know in China they can they can paint your pictures they can oil, you know oil paint your pictures so I thought well, what about if I took photos in New Zealand and got them oil painted and um, yes yeah, so I was sitting in the back of classrooms at Tawa College and um, thinking this could be a give this a little go because if I if I get my own designs for my photos they can't be copied because it'll be my images yeah and that's how it started really that was the first little step. How did you make the connection from New Zealand into China? Like, what was that relationship? Do you have any connections there or networks already? No, well, this good guy who mentioned it to me lives in China, to be right. honest. Um, and, but yeah, Alibaba was fully roaring at that stage. So, um, Alibaba is such an awesome way to, to make connections. Mm. So, I literally took three pictures, and it was like, it was like a, a, a railway cottage in Nio, the Titebe boat sheds. I can't remember what the third one was. And I got them oil painted and air freighted over. I ever thought, I actually think if I ever write a book, I'd call it Three Paintings, because that's how it started. I literally got three paintings, air freighted over, I framed them and I sold them. And then I got 10 paintings and then I framed them and sold them. And just kept going, keep flipping it. Yeah. Yeah. And every time I did a new order, I went, oh, they, people seem to like this or like that. And, and, it, and it, it morphed and changed. And because um, there's, there's a gap back, how it started was I thought there's a bit of a gap for art, you know, like. You can get really awful art and you can get really expensive art, but there's nothing kind of affordable that people like. So that's mm. it started as oil paintings. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And who, who was buying them over in China? Uh, no, so they were oil painted in China. Oh, oil painted in China. Sent ah, here and we'd buy the timber here and I've been on YouTube, learned how to frame a picture, yeah. bought an air compressor and like my kids were real little at that stage and they could just hear an air compressing nail gun going off in the garage, putting these frames together and stretching the canvas over the, over the frames. And uh, just started like trade me. I literally did the fruit markets. You know, um, Potirua has a fruit market. I remember setting up at like five in the morning in the middle of winter next to guys selling bananas and apples. And I had these oil paintings of like like Kiwiana shots and yeah. scenic shots and kind of a random mix. Um, but I think that's you know you, you got to be humble and go. Well, you know, this is an opportunity. These people mm. walking around with money. Give it a go, you know. Mm. So, um, and some people, I feel like sometimes young people today are like they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that kind of yards where you go from the humble beginnings. Yeah, yeah, yeah like just get out there and, and try and sell the thing. And um, we did music, music festivals. We did um, like in the Coromandel, these ten markets in fourteen days over New Year's. Yeah, and, and that's really hard work. Doing, and we had I just double bounced my third kid and broken her arm. So and we had to re-break it three times. Shit. It's just for Christmas. Story. <laughs> I think we just had our fourth, and then I had to go and do these 10 fairs in 14 days, and I took my oldest girl, Georgia, with me, and we did these uh, 10 fairs and, um, you know, to do a couple of thousand a day. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so getting out there, and, but the key thing is with all that, all that, as you're growing, is going, what do they like, what do they don't like, keep changing, keep tweaking it, mm. and we end up with this range um, of basically scenic shots in New Zealand, Kiwiana, and we got into doing historic shots of... Um, from the Turnbull Library, we got all these old photos, and we did these. Because when I was getting when I was getting quotes for oil paintings, I found um, a company gave me a really cheap um, quote, 
and it was for prints. And so I, I started getting prints over and framing those. And then it, and then it basically all came, um, it became all about prints really rather than the oil paintings. Mm, true that. Yeah. That's and then, crazy. And then we did like 18 pop-up shops over two years. Wow. Because the GFC was raging, the, uh, there was a lot of empty stores, so you could get shops in like Lampton Quay and downtown uh, Queen Street in Auckland mm. for the cheapest chips. Mm. And you could just go and hang up these big pictures and, mm. and start trading. And yeah. I'm, I'm super fascinated at like the, the thought decision around you know being $2 million in, de- in debt mm. at that time, 10% interest rates, and then yeah. be like, hey, cool, I'm going to... Go around this path, not flipping property, mm. but you know, selling off oil paintings. Yeah, and like you mixing your passion and your blend for photography and Kiwiana. Yeah, what, was your wife sort of panicking at that, or, or yourself, being like, "What if this doesn't work?" Did you put all your eggs into that basket? <laughs> well, um, I was relief teaching, and I relief taught. Like this, there was a teacher at um, Tower College called Richard Gale, and he basically gave me work every day of the year, right through the very end, even when the seniors had left and all that. Shout really, out, Richard. You know, he really looked after me, I'll never forget him. And um, he, so we had this kind of income, which was going back to what I said about having a trade, you know. Yeah, something to fall so, back on. Yeah, so getting a thousand bucks a week, so it's something to live on, and having that bit of extra time because you're finishing at 3 30 or whatever, and going home and, and getting cracking on the next thing. But um, yeah, pretty. Pretty much in a hole because with the two million dollars and the thing is with the GFC, you couldn't give away a house. No one wanted a house. No, like, you, didn't no matter one what, was buying. Doesn't matter what the price was, you're not going to sell it. So you got all, so we had like seven properties. You had to rent them out, and over time interest rates came down, and, and then they all got rented out. And after a year and a half, they hit break even, <laughs> and uh, it slowly got better. But yep. you know, and I feel like in the next year we're probably going to see a bit of that in the current market with the residential property collapse. So. Uh, if there's any young guys out there who are developers, I, I've been there where you've been. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. When did you make the decision to sort of branch out from doing these um, oil paintings to like the, the prints to doing additional products? Yeah. So we had this massive day where I did, um, I got up at like 4am and drove to the Mount Fair. Did the Mount Fair is one of the biggest fairs in the country. Uh, sold in the 30 degree heat to about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. It made it like 5,000 bucks, so I was really stoked. Packed up the car, drove to Auckland from Martinborough, which is like eight, eight or nine hours. Got there about nine o'clock, set up to do a wholesaling trade fair. So this is where all the New Zealand retailers turn up to buy their stock. And that, that goes for three days. And that really flopped. <laughs> and I sort of, after that trade fair, I'm like, because I always wanted to, I wanted to wholesale so you can multiply what you're doing, you know, mm-hmm. rather than just what you can sell. And after that fair, I was like, well, wholesaling pictures is tough because they take up lots of space in shops. Yeah. Um, so, you, I mean, you can make money out of it, but it's a tough gig. And then I thought, well, what about starting to put the images onto things that are smaller that you can wholesale? So, like, um, you know, like tea towels and placemats and things. And then someone told me about the Canton Fair in China. So I'm actually going there on Wednesday, to, um, this Wednesday, which is the first time since 2019. But um, I went over to the Canton Fair. And I, know, I knew nothing about it, like... I turned up and I literally saw these guys at a railway station, these American guys, and I said, oh, you're going to the Canton Fair? And I jumped over the rail and jumped in the cab and off went to the Can- this Canton Fair. So Canton Fair is like five Westpac stadiums, three wow. stories t- tall, 100,000 people go through, um, every country in the world, and there's just all the factories in China setting up, showing you their wares. And so I wandered around trying to find you know, things that I could put my images that I'd proven were successful onto, mm. op- onto products. And, uh, yeah, the first hit product we had was the Scrabble, these little um, magnetic Scrabble tiles. Uh, uh, we must have sold half a million of these things in around New Zealand. And uh, that was our biggest, biggest hit. So, yeah, just started going up to the China and went to a fair in India, and uh, we were going to China two or three times a year to these fairs. And um, taking what I'd learned from the two years of hustling these mm. pictures and trying to make um, smaller products that you could wholesale. Mm. So and that were, going to the markets in China was really like a learning process to see what sort of materials there were. Yeah, so I mean, there's nearly any everything that's in any shop in New Zealand will be at these fairs. You know, they're absolutely massive. Um, but you walk around and, and you literally walk 15 k's a day because we measure it. Mm. And for, and for those eight hours of walking, 99 percent of it's just junk, just tacky, terrible stuff. But then you. But you'll see something that'll catch your eye and think, oh, that's quite cool. But if I, my mind will start racing. I'm a bit, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm ADHD, which a lot of entrepreneurs are. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll see something and I'll be like, oh, if we ch- change that and put this design on, and um, you know, yeah. So I'd come back from China with all these ideas, 
And so one of the key things about mine roads, we have, um, we always we don't do anything unless we get a mandate to do it. So I never go to China and go, I really want to do um, gumboots. Yeah. And I'll start doing it. I come back with all these ideas and I'm always asking people. I'm always putting out market research to my, my retailers, to my friends, my family. Even just 30 people, you'll see a trend straight away. Mm. Um, so I've been doing that since day one. and, and that, So we don't do a product unless we get a mandate for it. Mm. And I, I bring back products from overseas and my staff will be like, that's, you know, just, they just roast me. Like I get so mocked about some of the ideas. But that's fine because you've got to go through that to get to these little winning gems. Mm. So we might bring back 100 ideas and it whittles down to 20 and, and then we might get um, 15 and we might get samples made and then we'll take them to our trade fairs in New Zealand. So, mm. yeah, it's a process that we, yeah, we, we, we go through. That's really cool. So you've got the finger on the pulse with what your customers and what, I guess, the people of New Zealand and around the world, essentially, from your customer base yeah. really enjoy and like what they'll like to consume. Yeah. So, I mean, like our customers, like we, I texted 10 of our biggest retailers in New Zealand on Friday and they, to ask them what percentage of our customers are female and it's about 80%. Mm. So I'm, I'm 49. What would a 49-year-old bloke know what that woman want to buy? It's, it's absurd to think that I'd know. So by asking them, I've got, I'm going to have a way better chance of, of having success, right? So, um, yeah, I would bring back a whole lot of options and then put it to them, and then they literally vote. And it's not this high-tech market research thing where I have Colmar Brunton do it or anything. It's literally just, here's, here's 50 ideas. Mm. Tell me what your favourite 10 are yeah. to 30 to 50 people. And I have a little telly marks in my diary. And I go, right, after 50, I can see these 10 are winners. Because um, I'm not aiming for like people who live in Oriental Parade, the high end or the low end. I'm aiming for the big chunk, you know, the big middle New Zealand. Yeah, I call it the Whitby or the Tower. Yeah, yeah, vibe, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, and... Because that's where most people are in New Zealand. Because New Zealand's only five million, I need I need volume. I want to do mm. volume. Not not I'm not a niche product. Not boutique. Um, so yeah. So I, I always let the people say they tell me what to do. There's such a smart way of doing things. Mm. What what about when things haven't quite worked? Where you might have got. I'm sure there's been examples mm. where you've got a big order from overseas, think it would be a massive hit over yeah, here, and yeah. then it just has not landed. So because we do the mandate, we have really high strike rate. But as you say, there will always be a couple of flops. So how do we clear the flops? Um, we've done things like one-day one deals to get rid of the stuff. Um, I've actually got about four retail, five retailers who are clearance stores who I'll put stock through to, to clear off as well. But like this summer, I, um, we set up these clearance stores and then I tried, I ran all the numbers through our um, reporting system and there was literally nothing that wasn't selling this summer. It's been really busy. Um, so, and it proves that that mandate works, you know. Mm. So, yeah, you've just got to find a way to move it, basically. Yeah, yeah. get it out. Yeah. What's been like your, the funniest products, which you think, which you guys have sold on that you just didn't think would be a thing, but it actually is? Funniest product. Um, well, I got in trouble once for doing tiki salt and pepper shakers. Yeah. So I was at the Auckland Museum trying to sell them these tiki salt and pepper shakers, and the lady must have been coming like ten years ago now. She said to me, "I oh, realise you can't put food in a tiki shape," and it was kind of like I was, so I first realised, oh, you have to be careful with this whole Māori thing in products. So uh, that. That was like a bit of a um, went well, and we had to go away and learn from that. Mm. And, and I feel like we have, and we've been on a real journey since that with our Māori products. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And is that, is that must be a big part of Moana Road, right? Because you guys are Kiwiana in the purest essence of the word, and yeah. bedding that sort of um, te ao Māori, tikana sort of a, approach across your products, making sure that that's really authentic. Yeah. Has that been... Has that just been an opportunity for you just to really listen and understand a bit more around what that what that culture is and how to work with it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm Pakeha, um, and um, we wanted to do it right, and it's been a journey. And I think the sort of three things that we have done to to try and make that journey right. So first of all, we've got a cultural advisor. So a Maori lady helps us. If we had a product, we put it to her, and she'd say, "Oh, yes, no, you know, maybe change it." And then we got, and then we decided like we wouldn't do any. From now on, we won't design any Māori products. We'll get a, we've got an artist called Midi Grace Smith, who's a very contemporary young Māori artist from around, out, out these ways, and um, she does all our Māori products now, and it's been a massive hit having her do that. 
And then we, we supply a couple of shops in Christchurch called Hapa, which is Tikitane's sister, Maureen Hapa. And she said, like, you're doing it all well, but the last thing you need to do is you need to put something back into your local iwi, which is Ngāti Toa. So mm. we decided rather than um, – we thought the best way for us to put back into our local iwi is to impart what we've learnt. And so we run a six-week course once a year where – uh, um, budding artists or business people who have ideas from that iwi can come to us for free and and um, have a half-day session for six weeks Super. where basically I tell them everything I've learnt. Like, um, I know, there's no holds barred. I just tell them everything I've learnt. And, and then as the course goes on, we do we do we um, we go through the design process and social media and, and then they start bringing their ideas in and then we help them develop their ideas. And then from there, if we can get another Muddy Grace Smith then uh, we can add that to the collection. So mm. from last year's one, we got a guy called Herman Saltzman, who's a Pukura Bay uh, carver, and he came up with the idea of doing these solar lights in his carvings, which we're just developing in China at the moment. Super cool. Yeah, so it's been an interesting journey to get to from being um, told off at the Auckland Museum. Yeah, led to this. <laughs> through to, I feel like we're doing, we're doing a way better job of it. And um, because the reason why we, we want to do Māori, for me, a couple of reasons. But one, one, one is that, like for me, te reo is what makes New Zealand different in Australia or anywhere in the world, right? Totally. And so I love, like, you know, we do, we have te reo on a lot of our products. And, and what it separates a New Zealand product from an Australian product, you know, because mm. we're always got to, we're always competing with, you know, like Kmart's not on our level, but Kmart designers in Australia, it's an Australian company, isn't it? They're, des- they're designing products for the Australian market and then they just chuck it in the New Zealand market. Like I was in there the other day and there's a kangaroo jumping over a desert. Like it's got nothing to do with New Zealand. Mm. So we can compete with that giant by going, well, Kiwis don't want a kangaroo on a desert, but what they do want is to see our culture. Mm. And um, so... It's our unique fingerprint in a way, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so passionate about that and... Um, what was I? What did I say before that? I was the, the reasons why we do with the, the Maori stuff. Yeah, so trying to create something unique, and I want to promote Te Reo, and um, those two things have meant that we that we really want to move forward with that. But we had to learn to do it properly, mm. and not offend people, and and put back into our local iwi and give back what we're trying to take. So I feel like we've got kind of a yeah. formula that's working. Yeah, that course sounds awesome. What a cool way just to give back to the community as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we, had good, we had great fun with them last year. It was a good time and, and we're looking forward to doing it again this year. It's super cool. Mm. With the growth of Moana Road, like you, you go down the street in Wellington, Cuba Street, mm. wherever you are, you could even be in Hawke's Bay or Topo, you're mm. going to see Moana Road sunnies. Yeah. You're going to see some sort of Moana Road, um, you know, items or products. Yeah. Along the way, how did you manage the growth of the company escalating, I'm, I'm assuming, pretty fast with last year, you know, selling over 500 products? What is that, what is that sort of journey been like actually managing shit? Like, you know, things are getting really, really busy. Um, I think because I went through the GFC and nearly went bankrupt, I've been quite cautious and... Um, you know, I haven't. I, you know, some businesses they'll you know, hear them say, "Oh, we've borrowed two million and we'll break even in eight years." Like I couldn't. I never had that luxury. It's like I needed to pay these mortgages and I needed to feed my family from day one. So it's like sell and make profit, and then reinvest, sell and make profit. So there was no waiting two or three years. Sink so or swim. yeah. So really, um, to manage the growth, I had to. We're getting the right people. We've got a great. We've got a great team of people who, who we've brought in along the way. Um, we've had heaps of students over the years working with us, like even old students that I used to teach. A lot of them, um, but getting the right people has been massive, and just having a go at things like you know, um, I think if you're an entrepreneur, you can't say, "Oh, I don't, I don't know computers. I, I can't do it." Like you just, if you have to have a website, you got to work it out, you know, and so. All the facets, you know, the accounting. Because when you're little, you're doing everything, right? You're making the product, selling the product, doing the box. As you get bigger, you get the luxury of going, actually, I don't want to do the GST anymore. I don't mm. want to do the payroll. And you can bring in people to do the bits you don't like. Mm. And then you get to do the bits that you do like. And normally those are the bits that you're actually quite good at. Yeah. Um, so as it's growing, just keep bringing in people, bringing in people. So we have four designers now working on our, our different products. Um, because before I was kind of having a bit of a hack at it, and yep. now it's done way, way better. <laughs> um, so that's awesome to have that luxury. But just bringing in good people, you know, at, at the right time without um, putting the company in the edge of bankruptcy, you know. Yeah. So always having the payroll and 
cash flow mm. to pay it. Mm. Mm. What's the biggest risk that you've taken with the business today, and what and has that risk paid off? So, you know, I said we've we got three paintings and we sold them, and we've got ten paintings and we sold them. It's been like that the whole way through. It hasn't really felt risky. Um, when you when I was property developing, you know, you're literally spending a million dollars, whatever, to do a project, hoping it'll sell. But when you're doing small little products and you're starting little and you're just you're just slowly getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it never it's never felt like a risk. Mm. Um, you know, now there's we've got this, you know 800 square meter warehouse in Porirua full of products, and um, I, I never feel like it's risky at all because the figures that you have, you know, the, the history of sales is so consistent and growing um, that. And even through COVID, we still, like the COVID year 2020, we were flat. But apart from that, we've grown up nearly 30% every single year. It just wow. keeps growing. So it doesn't feel risky. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm. Um, I'm also really interested to hear how, what, what has been like the sales journey, essentially getting all your retailers on board. So you've got 900 retailers in yeah. 10 countries. Yeah. What's that process been like to get them signed up? So I think... Um, you know, we've done a lot, of, a lot of our retailers will come through trade fairs. So New Zealand has three trade fairs for our industry. So setting up and showing your products. And it's kind of a case of to get going, you need these little champion products to get your foot in the door. Yeah. And, and then once you get the foot in the door, you'll get more and more, um, more, more space in your stores. So it, it's something you kind of, you've got to earn, earn the respect and the mm. position in the stores. So it's going, it doesn't happen overnight. But gradually, you know, so I, you know, I see that we started with those Scrabble tiles, um, those magnets, and, and now we've got like 53 stores with like island stands, like 2.4 metre long island stands covered mm. in, and, and then bag stands and sunglass spinner stands. And so it, it starts little and it slowly gets bigger and bigger. So to get into those stores, um, the key thing is that you're always giving them products that sell. So if, 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 you know, if I've given them products for eight years that have sold, and I show them another 10, they're probably going to go, well, I like those seven, but those three don't work for us. But they get a lot of confidence in what I'm doing. Mm. And, um, and so it's just something that you can't do overnight, mm. but you build up this kind of, they trust, you know, who we are and what we do. Mm. So, and, and, and our retailers, you know, a lot of the time they're not buying, they're not ordering like, you know, um, you know, if we did, you know, like these caps, they're not going to say, oh, we'll take a hundred of those caps. So literally it'll be like, oh, I'll have three of each colour. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a lot of retailers buying a little bit. And if those three, those nine caps don't sell, they won't reorder them. So it's mm. not a big risk for them. Yeah, true. Um, so, yeah, it's just been a case of it just growing slowly and getting more and more of a foothold. But we've been really conscious about our brand the whole time. Yeah. So a lot of our competition um, don't really have a strong brand. And I thought, because I sort of grew up in that world where um, – you know, I think it was Vision Street where it was the first company to put the label on the back of the shirt, you know, the, your little tag. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up in that kind of that skateboarding and surfing world where the brand became really important. And I think the generation older than me aren't, is into that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like at the trade fairs, their company's called something like, you know, Pudakawa Holdings or something boring like that. Whereas we come along, now we're Moana no, Road and we're, this is our brand and we're going to push the brand. Mm -hmm. And the, the stronger your brand gets, the more momentum you get, the more power you get. In your in your space, mm. so we've been really big on pushing Moana Road as a brand. Yeah, yeah. How how have you done that? Is it like any? Do you have any particular sort of strategy when it comes to your marketing? We we sponsor a lot of events. Yeah. Um, so you know, in the last couple of weeks, we did this massive youth camp in, in Mystery Creek with three thousand kids. We did the Wellington College Runathon. So we you know we give them like Wellington College. We give them about. Um, 1,300 T-shirts and 300 hoodies, and they're all printed up with Moana Road, and I mentor the kids at the school and how they run the run-a-thon. Um, so we, we were forever just getting behind, especially cool things that, because um, we've got this new cool papa for our um, brand, and it's called We Love, uh, love This Place. So not only do we enjoy New Zealand, but we want to love it and care for it mm. and, and the people. So, you know, like we, we've got behind like things like Live For More and the Bay of Plenty, which um, teach like at-risk kids surfing, get them cool. in the water. And so, we, you know, we, we did 100 towel hoodies for them with their brand on for free. And yeah. so we've got heaps of things that, like that all around the country where we're, we're, we're passionate about. And I remember one of the guys, I had a, a guy rung me and said, oh, he was trying to sell space in the, in, um, the rugby magazine, I can't remember what it's called now. He said, do you want to run an ad in the rugby magazine? And I was like... Who runs ads anymore? I'm not running an ad. I yeah, just, I, yeah, I've yeah. never run an ad. I've yeah. never paid for a radio ad 
or a TV or a TV or newspaper, but we just pump heaps of money into events mm. all the time. And every time we do, we've got our branding all over. So, yeah. and especially like you know events like we've got behind Surf Life Saving. You know, and there's all these healthy kids running around with towel hoodies and hats on with Mine Road on who are looking after the community and doing their sport and uh, they look healthy and young and it's such a great thing to be attached to. So yeah. that's, that's where all our marketing dollars have gone. Mm. I guess as well with those sort of sponsorship events, it's the way you're making people feel as well. It's like mm. you're helping provide like an experience to them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So our products, the, you know, love this place also. We want products that... Um, help people enjoy what we're doing. So like sunglasses is a great example. Like, you know, you're having a beautiful day at the beach in New Zealand and you've got some good sunnies on, you're going to enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. Or you've got a towel hoodie, you've got some jandals on or a hat. Um, so we have products that celebrate our culture, but products that just help you just enjoy being in New Zealand. So mm-hmm. um, when we sponsor an event, it's always sort of products that are going to be used in that activity or whatever they're doing. But mm-hmm. we, we're, not, like, we're not a surf brand, and we're not a skateboard brand, and we're not a fishing brand. But we, we our, our, our logo, this is the logo here with the... Um, the Bonga and the Moana, you know, we want to celebrate whatever Kiwis are doing from the top of the Monga to the bottom of the Moana. So if you're diving, fishing, playing golf, surfing, whatever, we want to provide products that will you'll help you enjoy that experience. Mm, that's super nice. And for those people just listening, uh, Paul has got a nice Moana Road cap and some classic Moana Road sunnies just on the table right here. Um, I'm really keen to go back to the sunnies. These are your, your biggest sellers, right? Yep. Your most popular popular products. Yeah. What was what was like the catalyst with launching sunglasses in NZ? I know you mentioned there was like you know premium sort of sunwear, and then the really cheap ones mm. at like petrol stations, servos, etc. Um, we just like stuff it. I'm gonna go for that sort of mid because they're so affordable. They're such good quality. Um, yeah, just keen keen to understand how these sort of got got set up. Yeah, so I was at a, I was actually at a trade fair and I picked up this pair of sunnies and it was um, like our biggest selling style is just a, um, the uh, the classic wayfarer style uh, and it was had wooden arms but uh, but plastic frames and so at that stage there were 100 percent wooden sunnies but they looked always a bit like 3D sunnies they were a bit ugly they were quite thick around the frames and these were kind of half and half and I thought that's quite a good idea because it's kind of got that environmental friendly factor it's not too expensive because it's only half wood. And it's a different angle on it. And so I brought back like seven samples and we took them to a trade fair and, and they didn't really, it wasn't really huge because our retailers don't typically sell sunglasses, but it was enough sales to go, oh, let's give it a, let's give it a little nudge. Mm. And um, so, yeah, we just started with, with just that, with a, with the wooden, wooden bamboo sides and, um, and it just took off. Like it's been, they've been so popular. We still, you know, I think we sell like 85,000 pairs a year. Crazy. Of sunnies, uh, sunnies and, um, and now we do everything from kids to readers, fashion, um, tr- you know, tr- hunting, tradies, and um, it's a mess. there's like 130 SKUs now of sunglasses. Mm. But they're, they're not expensive, they're only like $40, but they're all polarised, like um, they get tested in Australia, so they're all good quality, and um, it just, I don't know, it just had a... I think in business sometimes you just need to dip your toe in because you don't really know how it's going to go. Like, so we, we might have ordered 300 pairs for our first shipment and it could have been a flop, but it fired. And I think in business you need to keep trying things, you know, and don't be, don't be scared to fail and, you know, you'll have to clear off those 300, 300 sunnies. But um, sometimes people will like, have these ideas but are too scared to give it a, give it a go. And mm. I think you just got to keep dipping your toe and dipping your toe and try this, try this. Yeah. And, you know, you might fail a few times, but then you might succeed. And I never would have thought that there was a gap in the market for sunglasses like there is. You know? it's, it's crazy, right? Every yeah. man and his dog has got some Moana Road sunnies. Yeah. Are you even a New Zealander if you don't have one? Well. That's the real question, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, I still walk around New Zealand sometimes and I don't see them and I think there's still work to do. Yeah, yeah. 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 Is, is it surreal going, if you're travelling across the country and you see people wearing your products? Um, I, I assume that must take a bit of sort of getting used to. Well, we've been going about we've been going about fifteen years now, so I think when I'm going around New Zealand, I see it. But then, like a mate of mine was an Aussie, and he walked into a shop and there was Moana Road, and he sent me a photo. And I feel like sometimes my mates around, especially around Porirua, think that Moana Road's just in Porirua, you know, yeah. and then they see it overseas and they, like, oh my gosh, Moana Road's in the Gold Coast, or whatever. Um, so that yeah, that's surreal when you start seeing it overseas. Um, like we were sitting around a pool in Bali and this couple walked in and they were Australian and they were wearing Moana Road sunglasses. So, yeah, no, it's a buzz. Like, I love that. I love, I love, what, I love succeeding. I quite like sport, you know, so mm. I'm not necessarily like great at sport, but I, I love 
the, the game and, and competing and trying to get better at something. And for me, business is just a game. Yeah. And that's what gutted me in the, when the GFC hit. I was out of the game. Mm. Like we all play Monopoly and suddenly, nah, Paul, you're not playing anymore. Get lost. And that, that, that was real tough because I love it. It's fun, you know. Yeah. Um, I also want to speak to you about, about pressure. And obviously mm. with the business growing so big, mm. you, additionally, you also put pressure on yourself because you've yeah. got, like what you mentioned, you've got pay ra- payroll, you've got people to feed, you've got... Mm. You know, a, a lot more responsibility. Mm. Um, when I had Israel Whitley on the podcast, he's mm. talked about pressure being a privilege, mm. um, and he said he'd much rather the pressure of you know having to run a company mm. than having to put um, you know then struggling to pay to pay rent and stuff like that. Yep. So I just wanted to get your take on um, your perspective around the pressure that you might put on yourself being a successful entrepreneur. Well, I think if you're an entrepreneur and you're ADHD like me, um, when you get bored, you get it's not a good space for people like me, right? When I'm bored, I'm just irritable. I'm so I can have the, some of the lowest days of my life when I'm on holiday, if, if nothing's happening. So I like fizzing on something. So as long as it's not pressure where it's like I can't pay the bills and that, as long as it's pressure as in I'm, this is going good, um, I, I actually am happier in the end of that space. And I think since the GFC and getting a butt kicked, I've built. I've conservatively grown and haven't had taken massive risks. Mm. So it's never felt like risky or I'm going to lose everything, you know. So it's only been pressure as in, you know, like Christmas time we can have um, two shifts running and we've got like, you know, 10 to 15 pickers picking orders um, and it's it's crazy. And I, st- and I start waking up at four in the morning around Christmas time because, you know, obviously we do giftware. Um, but I f- I'm happier under that, you know. So I, I don't see it as a negative thing, the pressure. Mm. But I, I don't put myself in a place where I could lose my home or anything anymore. Yeah. I've always got a buffer so I'm safe. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a result of going through the GFC in 2008, 2009. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That makes sense. And mm. with stress, are you when you're under pressure, are you the sort of person that just has to deal with it directly or do you skits out, bite your nails, freak out a bit? And because um, I think so many people handle pressure and stressful situations in different ways, right? Some people are just shit at it. Yeah. Some people better than others. Do you have any like go-to um, approaches to when things just feel like I've got a hundred plates spinning at once? Yeah. Don't know where to start. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't have like a formula or anything. But I, I mean, I, I, was, I when when things are, are full on, I try and make sure I keep healthy. You know, like mm. by sleeping well and doing exercise and. Even though I've got a V on the table here, my wife. <laughs> I don't even know that was a V. <laughs> my wife won't be happy about that. I needed a little bit of a wake up. I suddenly. like how you turn the um, logo the other way yeah, as well, yeah. so no one can really know. Promote that. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I'm under pressure, you know, I don't uh, like. I remember once I was at a trade fair, and, and uh, one of our colleagues, um, I, I came around the corner, and she was talking about me, kind of, and she was laughing about. Oh, she was sort of saying, "Oh man, he's." He's stressed out because you know, when you do a trade fair, it's like twenty grand for three days, and it's like so there's a bit of pressure on because it you know it could flop. And the more we do, the less pressure there is because it's not as important. It's important, but not like, like and so yeah. I mean, I definitely get stressed and stuff, but um, I don't know if I have any like direct like formulas to deal with that. I just sort of just get through the the patch and know mm. know that there's um better times around the corner and and look look for that. You know, it's like Christmas time, I'm always thinking. You know, in so many days we'll be heading off on our, you know, January holiday and on the caravan with the kids surfing and enjoying New Zealand. So yeah, nice. having those carrots to look forward to. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm. And you, you seem like a really sort of cruisy, chill guy as well. So I think a lot of surfers are probably like that as well. It's just the mentality that you have trying to catch waves and getting humbled, eh? Yeah, I mean, am I cruisy? And I don't know. I think I'm pretty like, um, like I'm not like laid backers and like, like sleepy or anything like mm. I'm kind of you know I like to I like to be just all going yeah and lots doing of energy stuff, you know yeah. like um rushing from this thing to that so it's kind of a balance of trying to like not be too manic and then being but being productive and just finding sometimes you feel like you're an anesthetist to yourself trying mm. to find that balance of what makes you successful that day with being a husband being a dad being a friend yeah um being a boss yeah yeah. Mm. Um, with everything that you've learned over time, is there anything, in the, especially in the business context, is there anything that you would have done differently when you were just starting out? Um, so 
we have these four M's that are our, our principles for Moana Road. And so, so one of them I said before was mandate. Another one is momentum. So any business, you, you want to be creating momentum. And I always say like getting a business going is like moving an oil tanker. So you imagine an oil tanker that's sitting at a dock. To get that thing moving is so hard. But once the oil tanker's on the sea and it's cruising along, you could put so much stuff in front of it and it wouldn't stop. It, the momentum carries on. So I feel like in business you always want to be um, – you want to be like gaining momentum. And for two years when we started with those pictures, we weren't actually getting any momentum because a picture's not, if you get a picture for a good price, you don't tell your mates about it because you, you just want to go, oh, that was just something I picked up at a market. You don't, it's not a preach product. True. Whereas if you get some sunnies for a good price and you love them and there's 130 styles, you tell your mates, hey, these are great. I love these sunnies, you know. Like, you know, if a restaurant, you go to a good restaurant and you love it, you, it's a preach product. You tell your buddies. Mm. But... Um, with the art for two years, there was no momentum. It was just literally paying the bills and surviving, which was important because we, we needed to pay that, um, those massive mortgages and then we had to live. But I think you always want to be doing products that is creating the momentum, moving the Autanga forward. And for two years, I don't think we were getting any momentum, apart from I was learning what New Zealand is like as far as like, you know, like for example, we, we used to do these, uh, had a photo of the Cure Dairy in Featherston and, and it was a bigger selling print. And so, so those images were momentum that we could then take into other products. But as far as just setting up pop-up shops and selling art, that's not going to create a long-term business. Mm, true that. Mm. Um, you also mentioned that Monopoly is mm. another one of your sort of four, four whys. How did you describe them before? The four M's. The four M's. Yeah, the four yeah, M's. Yeah. Not whys at all. Um, can you speak a bit more on Monopoly? So... If you want to, um, if you want to have real like um, constant security in what you're doing in a business, you need to have some sort of a monopoly. And when I mean so monopoly, I don't mean like you know you're the only tel- telco in the country yep. monopoly. I'm talking like I feel like a brand is a monopoly. Like if you want Moana Road Sunnies, there's only one place you can get them in New Zealand. That's mm. through us, right? We own Moana Road Sunnies. So brand is a good way to have a monopoly. Uh, so it's a different view of mon- the word monopoly. Um, another thing is design. So when Millie Grace Smith does her um, amazing contemporary Māori art and we turn it into a product, no one else can do that because we own that now, right? So if, if you're ever competing against, um, so say, um, say you do those, those head torches, you know, those LED head torches. I remember when I was look, first looking at things to import and they were, they were big. And, and the thing is, if you brought that in and it was a hit, you're going to have Bunnings doing it, Kmart doing it, the warehouse doing it because you don't, you don't control it. So it was really design and our ideas which creates a monopoly and that creates um, the momentum. Mm. Um, and anything you're doing in business, you've got to be creating the space around you where you have – because monopoly, you have a power really. Mm. And um, so really for our, we create a monopoly through our brand and our design, in which we you – know, for a company our size, having four designers, uh, we, we invest a lot in design mm. and um, that creates unique products. We're not competing with Kmart mm. or the warehouse or farmers – because we're we're creating a really unique space. Mm. That's a really that's a really key key point there. I think with mm. um and we've got a flickering light going on just behind us, so we'll just ignore that. But um yeah, who like especially because you're selling things which can be quite similar to those of you know Kmart farmers mm. etc. Has there been any – it would be hard to compete with like price wars and stuff because mm. they're just so massive multinational companies, right? Like, yeah. So, so you're saying the way in which you guys create the monopoly is by making almost like really bespoke Kiwi designs. Yeah. So, yeah. so last summer we did our first range of puzzles. And so you can get a puzzle in heaps of shops in New Zealand, right? And it'll, it'll be something like the London Bridge or Eiffel Tower or something, you know, global – so we, our four puzzles was the Cura Dairy, a Mitty Grace Smith design. We hand-painted 54 New Zealand fish, and we had it kind of looks like a, you know, the old fish and chip shop poster as yep. a puzzle. And we have one which is kind of like um, our – as a kid's one for uh, like with New Zealand animals, like birds and all that. And so we had these four designs, and so by, by having these four designs, suddenly our puzzles aren't competing with the Eiffel Tower or the London Bridge because it's, it's unique in New Zealand. And so the, the price can be will be probably dearer because we've paid, you know it's our own design, um, and so that's that's how we compete with those guys. We we create something different, mm. and I think people like that, mm. you know. And we and we we we're like prolific with new products. We just had a trade fair a few weeks ago, and 
and a lot of co- most of the companies didn't have really much new stuff. And we had like six pages of a catalogue of brand new products that we developed between Christmas and the fifth of March. Mm. And um, so we just don't stop. We're always coming up with new, new, new mm. all the time. Back to that momentum piece that you mentioned earlier, right? Just yeah. keep on making that momentum yeah. and, keep happening. And retailers know that. Like, they know that we, they're going to get lots of new stuff with us. Mm. And so they're going to get fresh new stuff, and they know it's going to sell because we only bring it in if we get a mandate. Yeah. What about the last the last M there, which is mahi? Um, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think there's many successful entrepreneurs who don't have a good work ethic, you know, and... Um, to start off with, I was working so hard because I was teaching all day and then framing pictures till late at night and then getting up at five o'clock and going to fruit and veg markets to sell the pictures. Um, you know, if you don't have the mahi, uh, you, you're not going to get anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I learned off my dad. Like he's hardly had a Saturday off in my whole life. Um, he's got an amazing work ethic. And I think if you really want to get going, um, in oh, phone's gone. Um, you just got to have that work ethic, you know. And like that Israel guy you had on here, like you know, he seemed like he's a pretty hard worker. Yeah, and he's a weapon. I don't think I just don't think um, anyone's a successful in business unless they've got some amazing idea that's gone global, you know, um, that someone else has bought the rights to. Most of the time, they've got amazing work ethic. So, mm. you know, the mahi is so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, talking about like work ethic and drive. How do you? Oh, no, so I'll turn that off. Totally <laughs> keep swinging. Go away, Katie. All good. Sorry, Katie. Um, talking about work ethic and drive. How do you balance that with work, like work life balance, and you know, looking after your family, being there for your kids? Yeah. Does it get very, very consuming? You know, were you just a workaholic, working crazy hours, or do you feel like you got a bit better at that? Uh, yes. At the start, I was working really hard because I was trying to create an income, doing the teaching, and get this thing going. But once Myra got going, I feel like I've I've got a, pretty, a really good work-life balance. Like I, I don't like dream of driving Maseratis and Rolls Royces. You know, for me, if I do if I do well, it, it's having the ability and freedom to go. Like I've been learning to wing pool this summer, and you know, I play golf, and I'm still playing rugby and surfing heaps. And I, the freedom's what I want. I don't want to, I don't want expensive assets. And um, so yeah, I have a really. We don't we don't work till like ten at night or anything. Like, we, but when we were at work, we head down. Let's go. Let's you know. It's more the German work ethic rather than the Japanese. You know, they, they always talk about Japanese. We stayed all nine, ten, eleven at night. Yeah, to that's right. The can, I've heard as well. It might be in Japan or China where like napping is yeah. um, so normalised in, yeah. in workplace culture. Yeah, I had someone that that worked over there, and he said. Throughout the day, it might be like 12 o'clock lunchtime, he'll look around and people would just be sleeping at their desks. I know. But it's a sign of them working hard. It's like yeah. they've deserved a rest. Yeah, yeah. To, 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 to me, I hate inefficiency. Like, I hate going on a trip and the wife will go, oh, no, turn around, we've got to go back to get some gas. I'm like, nah, we're going forward. You know, I just hate, are we moving forward all the time? <laughs> and so, like, when I've got my head down, I'm working hard, I'm looking at my watch going, oh, you know, the winds could be good for doing this, or this is going to be yeah. sunny, or... And, I love having those rewards of like going, I'm going to go out and have a round of golf or I'm going to mm. go for a surf or wing foil or whatever. Um, and I work towards that. But um, yes, yeah, so I'm never going to like sit there till midnight because I just, you got to, I've got to be happy because when I'm happy and enjoying life, I'm probably more creative with my ideas. Mm. And so, yeah, to me, it's really important to be just like frothing on what I'm doing. And, and that for me is like I love getting outside and doing sport and yeah. enjoying life. Yeah, yeah. There's a yeah, it's a real fine fine balance. Eh? I mm. feel I feel like so many successful business owners just their life is work and that becomes their identity. Yeah, and I, I guess it still is to a certain degree. You know, you whatever work you do, you wanna you wanna get fulfillment out of it. You wanna be you wanna be passionate about it. Yeah, mm. yeah, totally. Um, but it's not all of who I am. Like I always think at Christmas time, it's quite interesting because we have this intense month where we, you know, double our workforce and, and we, you know, we we put, go through so much stock. But then I've got to put it down and pack the caravan and go right now. I'm focused on camping, hanging out with mates, surfing with my kids, and I literally have to put that down, put work down, and which was a, which I was fizzing on, mm. and go, oh no, nah, now I'm fizzing on getting out in the long boards with the kids or going for a surf or, mm. yeah, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. So. I think it's a it's wisdom in life if you can 
go hard on your work and that, but then put it down and go, right, now I'm going to be a mate or I'm going to be a dad to my kids and do other stuff yeah. and get right into that and forget about the work yeah. and just focus on you know, other aspects of your life. Yeah, totally. Um, what does the future look like for Moana Road? Um, Let's think, you know, 10, 15 years down the track. Yeah, so when I used to teach economics, I mean, I remember year 11 economics, one of the goals of producers was satisficing, which means you get to a certain point and you're satisfied and then you just kick back. And I think New Zealand businesses, a lot of New Zealand business people like that, you know, you know, they get the, at least to say the batch, the BMW and the boat. Mm. Um, but no one wants BMW now, it'll be more like a Ranger probably, we're not something. But anyway, you get the, the things you want and then you kick back. And, and, I'm, and so probably, I probably feel like that in some ways that, you know, um, we've got everything we need. Um, so what's the motivation to keep going hard? You know, mm. like I'm about to go to China for two weeks going around trade fairs. What's the motivation to go hard for two weeks? And for me, it's the fact that now it's a chance to give. So, um, you know, I, I have a faith of a Christianity and, and, and that's important to me that, you know, too much has been given, much is expected. So for now, it's it's about to giving now, like paying it forward and, and, and we've got enough to live. And... Um, I mean, I was talking to a business person one day who said that he practices, um, what was the word, that, you know, it's being satisfied with what you've got, you know, not wanting more all the time. And so, and if you can do that, then you can, you know, you can give more and more. So, mm. you know, the, farm, the guy who started Farmers Trading, he started giving 10% of his um, profits. And by the time he finished, he was giving 90% and wow. keeping 10 Wow. And to me, that's a hero in business. You know, yeah. that you're not, I'm not in business so I can have a massive Rolls Royce and, mm. and house all around the place and that it's so you can give yeah and um, so like even Patagonia like a massive example there was didn't the founder recently he did, he did something crazy where he like has donated all of the earnings of the company to something around environmentalism or yeah. something like that like yeah, it's, yeah it's crazy stuff eh? it's well, there's awesome. been a few stories eh? like um, Warren Buffett yep. Zuckerberg Gates you know Phil Gates, what a legend, like, mm. you know, and that to me are the heroes in business where they go, I've kicked, you know, kicked, kicked butt and succeeded and I'm going to give my, I think he gives his kids a million each or something, which is probably all they need and otherwise they'll ruin their lives. A small loan of a million dollars. Yeah, well, I mean, it gets them a nice house and, you know, that's good, but he's not going to give them like hundreds of millions and ruin their lives for money. Yeah. But then he's gone in and changed, you know, whole um, issues in the medical world and mm. like eradicated polio and like, I love that. Like to mm. me, that's tr my true heroes. Yeah, people who succeed in their area and then go and do something for others. Like yeah. Bono's another one. You know, obviously a huge rock star, but has gone and positively affected so many people on this planet from his work with um, relieving debt and mm. hunger and that. So um, yeah, it's, for me, it's not a case of going right. I'm satisfied. Paul's got a cool life. I'm going to go to Bali four times a year and um, have fun and that. It's going. We've got to keep pushing because I got. The more I push, the more I can give. Mm, I like that. That's yeah. really nice. I, I feel like as well in 2023, like to be a viable business, you have to have some sort of community spirit. Or you've got to have a, a, a deeper why than you probably had to of 20 years ago when it was all about profit. Yeah. yeah now totally. so much, you know, it's like, cool, you sell me sunglasses, but, you know, what are you doing for mm. the community? What are mm. you doing for the environment? I feel like that, that's the new generation of consumers coming along and putting a lot more pressure on businesses yeah, yeah. to adopt more probably social policies. So I, lo I love stuff like social enterprises. Mm. There's um, one of my favorite is uh, Thank You, what they call Thank You, it used to be Thank You Water. Yeah. I don't know if you heard of them before. Mm. Um, it's this young guy, Daniel Flynn, who started it up and he was doing a university assignment where he was researching about third world countries and he came across this article and it, was, it told a story of a young girl who would have to travel like 10 miles or something to go collect fresh water for her tribe and then mm. had to walk all the way back and give it to her. Yeah. And she collected, um, you know, a few, a few buckets of water one day, brought it back into her town and her village and that water was contaminated and she ended up killing some of her, um, you know, some of her family members and stuff. And yeah. this guy, Daniel, young Australian guy, he was just like, fuck, just brought him to tears. Mm. So he sort of disrupted the um, water, the, the plastic drink water bottle industry and made a business model where they gave 100% of their profits to fund water wells in third world countries. Yeah. And now they've, you know, they do nappies, they do music, music bars, 
you name it, they do it. Yeah. Um, and it's still around that business, you know, the, the social enterprise business model of giving 100% of their profits yeah. back yeah. towards awesome, the mate. social good. Yeah. yeah. So I love that sort of thing. Um, and that's why we want, and what we, we can do a lot with just even with our products because cause we manufacture and we can bring it in and give it to companies. Um, you know, you can make such a difference by giving them, it doesn't cost us necessarily that much, but to them they're getting heaps of stuff for the money that we're giving. So so we've got this, this new, new um, strategy coming out where basically our sunglasses, we're slowly giving a model over to different charities. So um, a friend of mine runs To Heal More I Trust, which um, is, it, it's about um, helping families with special needs. So on the side of the, on the stand, there'll be a little wooden thing and it says $2 from the sunglass will go towards the To Heal More I Trust. And then we've got Tiri Tiri Matangi, the Bird Sanctuary in, in the Haraka Gulf, you know, another model, they got theirs, and we've got the Live For More and... And, we've got, and it's a way of showing New Zealanders when they go and look at our sunglasses that, oh, they care about wildlife, they care about families with special needs, they care about mm. um, underprivileged kids. It shows that we do love New Zealand. We're not yeah. just going, oh, we're just shouting about it. We're actually going, if you buy these sunnies, two bucks are going to that, two yeah. bucks are going to that, two bucks are going to that. Yeah, that's huge. That's and awesome. I, and, and that's our way of competing with Quicksilver and Ray-Ban and these big brands. You know, they don't, oh, they may care about New Zealand, but I don't, they probably don't, you know, New Zealand's not really on their radar. It's just a little. It's a little branch somewhere off in the South Pacific. Mm. Whereas, well, I'm living here, and I love this place, and I want to see funds and product going to people who need it. And um, and I think that's and that's our way to compete with those global brands. Yeah, yeah. Because it's my backyard. It's not their backyard. Totally. Yeah. yeah that's super cool. Mm. Um, Paul, it's been such a good time chatting with you. Thanks for jumping on. Um, before we finish with some quick fire questions, where can people keep in touch with you um, and the good work of Moana Road? Uh, so on our website, moanaroad.co.nz, R-O-A-D. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook. Um, so follow us on there. And, you know, and you'll probably see us, we've got stores in every corner of New Zealand, like from Kai Tai to Invercargill, you're never too far from a Moana Road stockist. It's small of the town. Like we've got stockists on um, Stewart Island, Chatham Islands. Actually, Stewart Island, true. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. In Oban. So, uh, yeah, it's almost like the smaller the town, the more likely you'll see it. Yeah, true. Yeah. That's awesome. If, yeah, if you're not close to some Moana Road sunnies, you know, you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're in trouble. Yeah. Um, cool, and yeah, we'll chuck some links into the description of the show wherever you're watching on YouTube or listening on Spotify. Um, moving to some quickfire questions, what brings you true happiness? Ooh. I love getting outdoors in New Zealand and doing sport with people that I love, spending time with people. Like last weekend, we were up in Taranaki surfing some of the uh, some point breaks up there with some mates, and the sun was shining, and we were. And my daughter's three and my daughter's up there surfing and, you know, I just love New Zealand. Like, I'm really passionate about getting out there and enjoying New Zealand and uh, snowboarding, surfing, golf, whatever. Just love, I'm going off to China in a few days and I'm going to be in these dirty great big cities with glass towers and speed trains and I'm like, it's like I've got to hold my breath for two weeks yeah. while I'm, because I just want to get back to being in New Zealand because I love this place. Mm. I really do. Mm. Advice you wish you knew about when you were younger? Oh, gosh. Um, advice I, I mean I guess that thing about um, The momentum in business You know making sure you're always Whatever you're doing it's got a future And it's heading in a direction And it's not just a quick buck um, You don't just want to be a you know a barrel boy selling apples Trying to beat the guy next to you You're doing something where you're creating that momentum That's, that's for, for me a big lesson I've learnt in business Nice What does legacy mean to you? I, when I die, I want people to go, that guy, um, you know, was, was a great dad, was a great friend, ran that business, but loved people because he gave, he was a giver, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, I want people, no one cares about how, if you die, you're worth 300 million or whatever, but they want to know that you gave back, you know, mm. too much has been given, much is expected, you know. I've had a great upbringing and um, education and... Um, Great people in my life, so I, I, I want to be known as a giver. That's super nice, man. Um, business advice to somebody thinking about starting their own business. One piece of advice, a gold nugget here. Don't be afraid to dip your toe all the time to try things, and don't think 
you know, look for the way of being able to do it on the cheap, you know, like you don't have to have millions of dollars to start businesses. You can, you know, you, some people could argue that, oh, you know, there's these big global brands and you can't compete against Ray-Ban or Oakley's, right? Well, we've got a few pairs of Sunnies and we sold them and we are competing with them and, and we'll be taking their market share, you know. So don't ever feel like because you're little, you don't have a chance to have a crack because there's always a space and there's always a gap and, and just give it a little go, you know, import a few things, design a few things, make a few little things. Um, and, you know, you, you might try 10 things and fail at eight. What is um, the Tesla guy, what's his name? It's Elon. Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. He yeah. says, um, make mistakes quickly. Mm. I like that, you know. It, the mistake's not bad. It just means you're getting closer to finding the success. Yeah, great take. Mm. Um, if you could change one thing in New Zealand, what would this be? I would love to say, you know, I, 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 feel it's, I feel it's really sad that sometimes it can only be the wealthy, middle, upper class New Zealanders who are out there enjoying New Zealand. Like, you know, if you go up the mountain skiing or you can be at these nice beaches. And it, it, that's one thing I feel like I always want to have. I feel like every New Zealander has the right to swim on Mount Wanganui Beach mm. or ski Turoa or, you know, mm. swim in Lake Taupo. So, yeah, I hate those barriers the people who can't get to those spots. And I like to see all New Zealanders loving New Zealand. Okay. You know you're watching an American TVs and there were these massive houses right on the beach? Yeah. And you always think, how did the public get to the beach with that Hollywood star's got that house on the beach? Mm. Like, I hate that. Like, yeah. I love the fact that our spaces are for everyone. Mm. What do you believe is the main thing that is holding back young people in New Zealand? I think I heard a stat the other day that um, young people are socialising 30% less than they were 10 years ago. And um, I feel like young people are so connected, but then they're not connected. And, and they're on their screens all the time. You know, we didn't have screens when we were young, virtual on the phone and we organised a game of backyard cricket or soccer or whatever. We were way more social. Mm. And I feel like, you know, true joy comes from connecting with um, people. And uh, so I'd, if I could do something, I'd smash all the phones and we go back to <laughs> go back to phones on the wall. Yeah. Because uh, I feel like so much... There's so much positivity that comes out of people getting together mm. in the communities, and like you know, like for example, me and you are in the, the local rugby club, and and people love it, you know. And you don't have to be good at the thing, but you're just getting there and you're you're meeting community, mm. and I feel like people now need an excuse to get together, mm. and um, video games and screens and phones are just a curse. Mm. I feel in a lot of ways to mm. our society. Completely agree. Mm. Awesome, Paul. Absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you. No worries. Cheers. You've been good. Cheers.